This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, this is Kate from the Ignorance Was Bliss podcast. You're listening to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, a show about true crime in schools. So join Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host, as she presents the bad apples within the school system. You will hear school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable, and outright bizarre. Hello everyone and thank you for joining me today. Today the story I have for you has two parts. So this is part one and I will get part two out to you as soon as I can. And the story that I have for you today happened in South Korea, so let's find out about this country. South Korea is home to one of the world's best airports. The Incheon International Airport was named the world's best for the 12th year running at last year's Airport Service Quality Awards. So why? Well, apparently it has really nice gardens, it's got free showers, and it's got saunas as well. Now, in Western countries, it's common to greet someone by saying, how are you? But in South Korea, they have a different greeting. They say, have you eaten? Can you imagine if you didn't know this, and you go to visit South Korea, and the first person you meet says, have you eaten well? (laughs) Wouldn't that be interesting? This next fact is about blood types. Do you know your blood type? In South Korea, everyone knows their blood types. They are thought to contribute to a person's personality and characteristics and are used also to choose a spouse, believe it or not. For example, type B females should look for type O males. Type AB males will also do, but stay away from type A's. While not everyone believes in this, for some people, It is one of the questions that is asked on dates. While many of us are sun worshippers, the South Koreans have a fear of the sun. Dark skin is associated with farmers, and people will use sun umbrellas, and you will rarely see bare shoulders or arms exposed to the sun. In South Korea, it is law to only use Microsoft Internet browsers for banking and shopping. This has been a law since 1999. And finally, this last fact is very interesting to me as a teacher. Teaching is one of the most prestigious and well-paying jobs in the country. Looks like I might have to move to South Korea. So let's preview the story today. It's called Frog Boys. The boys had a day off school and went looking for frog's eggs. What happened? For this story, we go back 30 years to the day of March 26, 1991, to the country of South Korea. This was a significant day in the history of South Korea, as it was the first democratic local elections. To mark this important day, it was declared as a public holiday. In the city of Daeju, there was a school called the Seongseo Elementary School, And as you can imagine, the students at the school were thrilled to have a day off. There were six boys from the school who were very close friends. 
and they were playing outside one of their houses. But a neighbour complained that they were being too loud, so they decided that they would go and search for salamander eggs. Salamanders are amphibians that look more like lizards and are closely related to frogs. Like frogs, they live in damp habitats near or in water. So the six boys set out to look for the eggs in the streams of a nearby mountain where they lived. The boys ranged in age from 9 to 13, but one of the boys decided not to go with the others. He hadn't had breakfast that morning and was hungry, so he decided to go back home. After eating, he wanted to join back up with the group, and he found them just at the entrance of the mountain hiking trail. They had tin cans and walking sticks with them. However, the boy's mother had told him earlier not to go too far from home, and rather than receiving her wrath, he decided not to continue on with the boys. Throughout this story, you will hear quotes from the fathers of the boys and various other people describing what happened. Here is one father describing the closeness of the boys. The boys were closer than brothers. They were like the five musketeers. Our families were living close together. Our houses formed a circle. The children would often hang out near the rice paddy in front of the house. But before the boys headed onto the trail, one of them needed to go back home to get a jacket. Here is the boy's father recalling when he returned. My son came back to get a thicker jacket and headed for the door. I asked him where he was going, but he never really answered. He just said he was going to go out and play for a little bit. It was a little past 1pm when I got a call from the Taekwondo Academy saying that my boy had not turned up. So I went around to all the houses in the village asking whether the other boys had turned up at the academy. The parents were able to establish that five of their children appeared to be missing. This father recounts what happened next. Jong Sik's family called us. It wasn't just one child but five children. I went down to the village. A friend told us he had seen the five children. He asked them where they were going. The boys replied that they were going to find lizard's eggs. That's why we thought the boys had gone up the mountain. It was getting too dark. Near the entrance to the mountain, there was a farm filled with fierce dogs. We were worried the dogs might have escaped and hurt our children. As we went up the mountain, we saw no signs of the children. We were panicking. We couldn't think of anything else. We went up the mountain and looked around, but we couldn't see any signs of them. It didn't make any sense. There were five children missing. There was an army base on the left and a pond on the right. There was a shooting base above the pond. I felt like the sky was falling. When the boys still hadn't been located by nightfall, they contacted the police. And here is a father describing the police response. At that time, to be honest, the police were not helpful. They were very slow to react. They kept telling us to keep waiting. So we parents became very frustrated. We told the police something was wrong, but they said the kids just ran away and would come back eventually. They just kept saying that. If the police treated as a runaway case, 
then they do not have a responsibility to find them. So they kept treating the case like this. The families became increasingly worried and even began turning on one another, saying that they hadn't looked after the boys properly. The news of the missing boys began to reach various media outlets and a journalist talks here about how he found out about the missing boys. I was a novice in the local newspaper department. It was late afternoon when we received a report from the police. Five boys from a local town had not come home yet and the parents had reported them as missing. At the beginning, it was not very important news. The pro-democracy movement was growing in Korea. Everybody's attention was focused on who would be elected. When we first heard this, all the reporters and the police officers thought that the children were just playing out late. We didn't think much of it. After a few days of being missing, the police came up with the theory that the boys may have been abducted for ransom. So they gave each family a telephone that could record calls in case the abductors contacted them. Then one of the families did receive a call and one of the fathers recounted that call. Then there was a call at Jong Sik's house. The call said, I have the children. They are all suffering. Two are very ill. He asked us to bring a large sum of money to a street near Deju Station. I hoped that we could finally find our children. We went to the place with the police and looked around. I was so angry at the caller and wanted to beat him up, but no one came. We waited for another 30 minutes. We felt helpless. We didn't believe that this was happening to us. We ended up waiting for a full hour. Neither the caller nor the children showed up, and we returned home feeling miserable. Every time I heard a rumour, my heart stopped. It was a case with no leads. The same journalist at the newspaper that we heard earlier went on to say, We didn't take it seriously at the time, but as the days went by, it turned into an enormous news story. Within two days, it became city-wide news. After a week, everyone was talking about whether the kids were still alive. Then the story became nationwide news. Every life is important, but this case was extraordinary because it was five kids. The media then began referring to the kids as the frog boys. This was because they felt people wouldn't know what salamanders were, so they just used frogs instead. Then days and weeks went by, and the boys were still missing. Pamphlets were printed, and the parents began handing them out to people all over the city. It was then that they began getting help from South Korea's National Organization of Missing Children. The chairman of the organization had this to say. Looking back, the moment I met the Frog Boy's parents was the turning point in my life. I was in Incheon and I saw the five parents of the Frog Boys. They were handing out pamphlets of their missing boys. A middle-aged woman was in a rush and the parents handed her one of the pamphlets. She looked down and saw that she had stepped on some chewing gum. She wiped it with the pamphlet and threw it away in front of the parents. I was shocked. Why would she do that? 
it would break the parents' hearts. I grabbed a microphone. I asked the passers-by to look at the pamphlets and help these parents find their children. It was an unforgettable moment. The parents became increasingly dissatisfied with the police response. The police began referring to the boys as runaways and the parents felt that by classing them as runaways, this justified not doing a thorough investigation. They also noted that the pamphlets the police printed used the term runaway, even though the earlier ones had used the word missing. The parents then received more exposure for their missing sons by appearing on a local television program. The reporter asked whether they were satisfied with how the investigation was going. Here is what one father said. No, the police told us they cannot go on with the investigation because there is no evidence. As you can tell from this pamphlet, it has always said missing from the start. But somehow, the pamphlets printed by the authorities say runaway. This indicates the police are trying to wrap up the case quickly by treating it as a simple runaway. We want them to change this. The journalist who interviewed the parents on the TV program said, We had high hopes for the live broadcast. It was very rare to get a nationwide event like this. Police officers, reporters, many young students and members of the public were there. So this program became the biggest opportunity to make this case known. There was a tremendous amount of national attention. Then something quite bizarre happened during the live broadcast. The TV studio received a phone call from someone claiming that they were one of the boys. He was crying and asking where his mother was. Everyone was so excited and people began applauding and screaming that the kids were alive somewhere, but the call turned out to be a hoax. Despite this callous prank, the program managed to receive more nationwide attention, as one father notes here. After the TV program broadcast, word spread throughout the country. More effort was made across the nation to try and find our missing children. President Rote Wu even made a statement about the case. He even personally asked for it to be investigated further. The mountain where they had gone missing was searched a number of times, with one of the fathers describing the search. The police are saying that they are doing all they can, as the search has mobilised thousands. Countless people searched the mountains. Two groups of police officers were collecting evidence. The volunteers formed a line, then they stabbed the ground with a probe as they moved forward. Back then, the undergrowth was very short. From a helicopter, the police would have been able to spot an object as small as a cigarette box. The police looked for any evidence they could find, but by then, there was no point of searching because there were no traces left. The police were just following orders from their superiors, so they just pretended to do something. We, the parents, meant nothing to them. Now we will look at one other piece of evidence that was reported about the day that they went missing. Here is what one of the fathers said. On the day the children went missing, 
Chol Wan's friend heard a gunshot and then a scream. Then there was silence. The mountain was near a military shooting range and we wondered if the case was somehow connected to the military base. We went to the boy and asked him if it was true that he had heard a loud noise and he said yes. Do you think the police would go to the military base and investigate? The police didn't treat that rumour as serious evidence and they didn't investigate further. Think about it. No one would investigate this, so it just stayed a rumour. Then a lawyer began looking into the case and here is what he said. When we look at the facts of this case, one day five children just disappeared. There was a military base nearby. The Korean public assumed that this case was somehow related to the military base. So why didn't they investigate the military base? Could the military base really have something to do with this? The latest news reports kept pointing to the military. I kept thinking, why are the police not investigating the military when everyone is mentioning the military? I think they are hiding something. More and more, the parents began taking matters into their own hands. They all quit their jobs and rented a truck and began travelling and spreading awareness about their boys. One father said, We couldn't get any help from others or experts, so we handed out pamphlets in public places asking people to help us find our kids. We drove our truck across the country. It had five large photos of the children pasted on the side. The photos were coated so they could withstand rain. Underneath were the words, please help find our missing children. We called out to the public using microphones as we drove through the country. For example, when we went to Busan, we would stay in the station for the entire day, handing out pamphlets and appealing to the public. Then a whole agonizing year went by and you can imagine how perplexed everyone was that five boys could completely vanish without a trace. But then something else very perplexing happened, as described here by the chairman of the Missing Children's Organization. Journalists all over Korea came to meet us. When we did interviews, occasionally we would notice people taking notes. I thought they were reporters. So I asked one of them who they worked for. He gave me a business card and I saw that he was a manager. Other than his name and contact number, there was nothing else. Then I saw the same person again at the next media event. I later found out that he was from an intelligence agency. They would record the details of the father's schedules, such as who interviewed them, their whereabouts and their movements. If someone asked them why they were following us, they'd say they were protecting us. But now when I think back, I don't think they were. And one of the fathers added, they would come and follow us wherever we went. One person would follow me, another would follow another parent and so on. Wherever we moved, they followed us like shadows. They even sent people to our homes. They followed us and reported everything to their bosses. Who on earth treats the parents of missing children like this? Instead of suspecting us, they should be searching for the kids. Am I right? But they were after us, the victims. They wanted to know what we did and where we went, what they did to us, 
was absurd. And then, can you believe, it turned into three years with the boys still missing. The chairman of the missing children said, The parents travelled the country searching for their children for three years. Think how much that would have cost them. I went with the parents to help them search. They had no financial support. So they funded everything themselves, which put them into debt. The parents had problems in their daily lives. They had become well known. When they went out, they were recognised by the people. They had to live their lives away from the public eye. They couldn't appear to be happy as everyone knew they had lost their children. In public, they had to hide their feelings. Despite this, they kept searching for their children. Here is a father talking about how the media treated the case. The media harassed us. They didn't care how much we suffered. They would manipulate our words and publish fake news stories. So at times, we really despised the media. It was heartbreaking for us parents. The newspapers would say, no, we cannot publish this anymore. They kicked us out of their offices due to our demands. We went to every newspaper in Seoul. We had our family members to take care of. So we officially announced to the media that we would now return to our jobs. We stopped travelling around the country to look for our children. And a journalist added, In the beginning, we conducted the investigation as though the children were alive. But after a few years, people's interest started to fade away. Only the parents still cared. The public thought the police did all that they could do. And now, just listen to this next bizarre part of this story. Here is one of the fathers describing what happened. The military contacted all the parents. They asked if they could see us without letting the police know. They asked us to come at night. One of the commissioned officers let us in. They led us into a large tent inside the military base. There were soldiers inside the tent. A military official greeted us and began explaining why they had called us. The soldier said he would give the parents supernatural powers. The empowered one would be able to find the children. He put both hands on the side of my head, then he pressed his hands. Everyone else was okay, but my wife was affected by this. She started talking uncontrollably. The soldiers said to let her lead the way. It was shocking to see someone change so dramatically. She was never usually this bold, but suddenly she was running up the mountain. The soldiers were leading the way, saying, let's go. In the rain, our shoes were getting stuck in the mud. It was hard to walk, but we followed close behind. Finally, she screamed. The children were here, but everything she said turned out to be false. No matter how hard I think about it, I can't understand why. Why would the military do this? They could have just kept silent. Why would they call us in and do such a thing? I have no idea. The families also were able to meet with many high-profile people. Here is a father's recollection. We met almost every former president. When we met the president, he was in a hurry to take a photo with us. The media took lots of photos. The next day, the headline would read, 
President Visits Parents. The article would say good things about the government. The next day, he gave me some condolence money. But money wasn't the issue. All we wanted was for them to find our children. But they said it wasn't their job to find our children. It was the police's job. Now, if you thought this case was already bizarre, well, think again. Here is one of the fathers recounting what happened next. A man dressed in a black suit came to see me. I thought he was from the government, but he said he was a professor of psychology and that he had been studying the case for a long time. He said he'd heard about the case and had been thinking about it. He said that Jong Sik's father buried the kids. He said they're all buried in Jong Sik's house. So this psychologist was basically saying that one of the fathers of the missing boys had murdered them and buried them at his house. The chairman of Missing Children talks here about this bizarre allegation. At that time, there weren't many criminal psychologists in South Korea. It was unheard of. But he said he was a professor of psychology from the United States, which made everyone trust him. The alibi from Jong Sik's father did not match. He couldn't account for the first three hours on the day the children went missing. We had our suspicions. We suspected he could have done it. The psychologist insisted that the children were buried in his house. This psychologist was so bold. So I told Jong Sik's father to go with the detectives. If we dig up his house, and the children are not there, we can immediately arrest the professor. We all told the psychologist his assumptions were wrong. However, he was absolutely certain that he was right. He was sure the children were buried in Jong Sik's house. As soon as we found out, we did our best to stop him. We told him he would end up looking like a fool, but he wouldn't listen. A broadcasting team turned up at Jong Sik's house in order to film the event. A media van was there and antennas were set up for the broadcast. Some rumours are unbelievable, but others we could not believe at all. No matter what, it is impossible that someone would murder their own child and bury them under his house. Someone drove a small excavator and started digging up the house. The psychologist was telling them exactly where to dig. And one of the other fathers said, We did what you suggested. What will you find? We're not crazy. Why would we bury our own kids? This is killing us twice. Jong Sik's father was devastated and full of rage. I've watched the video of the house being dug up and it's quite unbelievable. The reporters talk with the father of the house as his house is being dug up with the heavy machinery. The father himself is interviewed and this is what he says. Why would they do this? Why this ridiculous theory about burying my own child in my own house? We had finally settled down to rebuild our lives after the heartbreak of losing our children. What a poor man. Can you imagine? And you see this video footage of him just sitting there with his head in his hands, just not believing what is happening. Another father describes here what they were doing to the house. People were moving the furniture to search the house. They basically removed everything. A lot of people had gathered to watch. Then it became clear that there was nothing to be found. Then Kim Ja-won 
started running away through the crowds. And this was the name of the psychologist. Some people yelled, catch him, catch him. He was taken to the police station for his own safety. All of us parents knew there wouldn't be anything. We had all lived, slept and travelled around the country together. There wasn't any time for him to bury those children. So, after they apprehended the psychologist, who had basically ruined this poor family's house, here is what the psychologist had to say. Well, I think now I have no choice but to accept my punishment for ruining their house. To write, that poor father. Here is one of the other fathers describing what happened to the father after that. I think he became sick because of the exhaustion of searching for his missing child. In the end, he died of stress and unresolved resentment. He was about 40 when he died. Jong Sik's family was now down to only one person. Can you imagine this? That poor mother, now she was all on her own. All of the families suffered immensely, as they describe here. I was devastated about losing my child. I wanted to end my life. We weren't wealthy and we were in debt. I lost my job at the factory because I spent all my time looking for my child. I was angry all the time and I got into fights with the police. I was charged with obstruction of justice and placed in a detention centre. I kept arguing with the police and because I was really upset, if something small got on my nerves, I argued about it. The parents drank a lot. I did as well. Drinking a lot weakens your body and you lose the ability to work and you become depressed. We developed bad habits. We are all poor. We all lost a child, damaged our bodies and became fools. So that brings us to the end of part one, but there is a lot more to come in this bizarre and tragic story, which I will be releasing in a few days. Alright, so now we fast forward 11 years after the boys went missing and one of the fathers recounts here what happened next. I received a call. I was in the detention centre. The prison officer told me that the remains had been found. My vision became blurry and I started to cry. It was hard to believe my son was buried here. Up in the mountain which had been searched so many times before, the remains of human bones were discovered. It had taken 11 years, but the boys were finally found. There is a video of the excavation of the boys' clothes and bones. A whole lot of people, including the parents, are watching on. One of the fathers said, Reporters were everywhere taking pictures of the bones. The parents were crying, as they looked from behind the police cordon. They were crying uncontrollably, calling out their son's names. I realised my relationship with my son was over. It didn't seem real to me. The clothes matched what he wore in a photo. The shirt, the shoes, the pants, everything was the same. So, how were they actually found? Some local people had been hiking up the mountain trail when they came across some old clothes. Then they noticed what appeared to be bones amongst the rocks. But as the parents were going through their children's clothes, 
they noticed something very strange. Here is a father explaining what they saw. All our children's remains were laid out on the side. I was asked to check if they were my son's clothes. Something was strange. The body was found with his trousers and shoes flipped over his shoulders. The sleeves were twisted as well. They were tied together. Then one of the mothers takes a top and demonstrates how the boy's clothes were found, and she says, The clothes were knotted like this. How can a child tie up his sleeves like this? So next, a forensic scientist was called in to examine the remains. Here is what he said. When I arrived, I found a ridiculous situation. The police were not experts in excavating dead bodies. They just dug out whatever they could find. They did not know any better. The police were organising the long bones and the skulls together, which was ridiculous. An expert would have arranged the bones together as one complete body. So, for around two or three hours, the police were making many mistakes. The chairman of the Missing Children's Association of South Korea, who we met in the first episode, said the following. The police should have at least cordoned off the area and preserved the bones on clean paper, but instead they just had them rolling around on newspaper as if they were selling them on the street. When I saw this, I thought we are like a third world country. How could the police do such a thing? And the forensic scientist added, we couldn't do anything to stop it. At that time in Korea, there was no system in place to ensure that a specialist, not the police, excavated the bodies. That is why it was an absurd situation. One of the fathers who was watching said, how dare they do this, arranging the bones in piles, and then call us to look at them and ask us if this is our child. We couldn't do anything, so we became angry. Following the excavation, the police then spoke at a press conference and here is what the police chief said. Considering all the evidence we have looked through so far, we think hypothermia is the most probable cause of death. Then a journalist asks him, so you're saying they weren't buried? And the police chief replies, no, the lowest temperature at the time was recorded as three degrees. But when it rains in the mountain, the wind chill factor would have lowered the temperature and the bodies were huddled together. Now we will look at the rescue team that went to inspect the site where the bodies were found. They were members of the Korean Alpine Federation. Here is what the director said. We are often called in for emergencies because our team has more knowledge and experience in mountainous areas. After the bodies were found, the police kept insisting that the children had died of natural causes. So, our team decided to check the area ourselves. Although we didn't know who the criminal was, we were certain this was a murder case. That area was not high up at all. It is not even 100 metres above the streets. Just use some common sense. Why were the children found at that spot when they were only 300 to 500 metres from home? If it was cold and raining, it would have only taken five or ten minutes to return home. The chairman also agreed that the hypothermia theory didn't make sense. He said, 
The day the children went missing, it was only 5 degrees Celsius. There is no way the children would have frozen to death at 5 degrees. They weren't sick either. Why would they freeze to death? It doesn't make sense. And the forensic team added, We knew this wasn't hypothermia. The strongest evidence for this is that if a child died naturally, the bones would have been found on top of the dirt. When a corpse is on top of the dirt, it rots or animals come to rip up the body, which means the bones would have been separated. However, the bones were all buried, which means someone killed them and meticulously hid them. So we needed to figure out why and we couldn't figure out a clear answer. So it was a huge mystery to me. As well as the sleeves being knotted, a father also describes something else that was found. He said, the sleeves were knotted. I found unused bullets in my son's clothes. After I saw this, I was convinced the children were shot. And to add to the mystery, there were bullets also found around the burial site, with a father saying, there were bullets found all over the scene. So why would anyone say that they died of hypothermia after seeing all those bullets? What kind of conclusion is that? After seeing the corpses, how could they say they died from hypothermia? We parents were certain this was positively not the case. After making the statement about the hypothermia theory, the police chief then stated, The parents were pressing me. So that's why I said something I didn't want to say. The father's response to this was, Why would you say something that isn't even true? I think the police came up with this nonsense in order to wrap up the case quickly. It's better for them if the case is closed. Now, you will remember that there was a military base nearby which had a shooting range. And here is what the rescue team said in relation to this. We asked the investigation headquarters for a map from the time of the children's disappearance. We saw on the map the location of the bodies was quite close to the army's shooting range. The bodies were found only 100 to 200 metres from the shooting range. The M16 rifle, for example, can fire as far as 2 kilometres with an effective range of 1 kilometre. The distance between the shooting range and the bodies means it is possible that the children could have been shot. The lawyer who was examining the case added the following about the military base. We can say that almost everyone in Korea assumed that this case was somehow associated with the military base. However, there was no evidence how or why the military would do this so no one could investigate the case further. The children were found near the military's 50th Division. There was even a military reserve force shooting range nearby. And of course, there were many empty bullet cartridges found around the area. The military range confirmed the bullets were from their range, but said they had nothing to do with the deaths. Following much speculation, the military base made a statement that there were no drills on that day that the boys went missing, as it was a holiday. But one of the fathers said, the day the children went missing was a holiday, and all the soldiers would have had the day off. 
but there was one unusual detail. Commissioned officers could shoot on their own. So a typical soldier would be having a day off, but a commissioned officer would come any time and practice shooting. Now, here is more detail on the examination of the bones as described by the forensic team. It took us around two days to find all the bones and then we brought them back to the university and started examining them. The media frequently reported that they were killed by gunshots because the children's skulls had holes on both sides. However, this injury did not have any of the features of a bullet wound. This means this wasn't done by a bullet. A powerful bullet usually causes a bone fracture, but there was no fracture, meaning they were not caused by a gunshot. All of the evidence was botched because of all the police mistakes at the scene. This is why we cannot be sure of the cause of their deaths. The police dug out some of the bones. We can only examine the bones that our forensic team excavated as evidence. We had to discount the bones the police dug up as evidence. We kept on searching and eventually, on the surface of the bones, we found sharp cuts. How did they die? How did these wounds happen? This was a huge puzzle. The police assumed the damage on the bones was post-mortem, maybe from farm tools. I kept on questioning how these injuries were on the bones. Because I am not a specialist in that field, I decided to ask a photographer to take some photos. I gathered them up and sent them to an anthropologist in the US. She replied directly and said these injuries were man-made and they occurred before the death of the children. After getting this reply, the case was turned on its head. We cannot be sure how they died and we can only speculate the weapon used, but we know they were hit on the head. One child had his clothes turned inside out, which could mean that the culprit covered his eyes with the clothes. Then they hit the skulls with blunt force. The culprit murdered the children by hitting their heads. Many experts assumed that this was done by a psychopath, but if this was the case, there should have been more cases like this, but there was never a similar case since. One of the fathers then shows a photo of his son's skull and says, Look at this. These marks are everywhere on his skull. Only my son had these scars. How is this not murder when my child had so many scars like this? The forensic team also considered whether the boys were murdered and buried at the same spot and concluded the following. When a person dies in one place and the body is moved sometime after the incident, it is difficult to move the body while keeping the bones in their natural position. When we excavated the bones, they were all in their anatomical order. Moving the body like this is impossible. When a corpse rots and decays, chemicals like phosphorus will seep out of the body into the soil around it. We checked the location surrounding the bones and analysed the soil in that area. We concluded the frog boys were killed in that location and the bodies decayed and decomposed there for more than 10 years. But the chairman of the missing children disputed this, saying, 
the forensic report said the children had been murdered and buried in the same place. But in our opinion, we don't believe that. In the beginning, when the kids went missing, the police said they had searched the area many times and the military shooting range. If they really did, I think the children's bodies would have been found. So the agonising wait for the families was finally over, but so many questions still remained. The lawyer said, at that time, the statute of limitations only had a few years left. It was such an old case that they couldn't find any other evidence. So the investigation fizzled out. The police just gave up, arguing that they couldn't continue searching. To this day, I think the case is a conspiracy. I know for sure there are many questions that haven't been answered. So after 13 years, the families were finally able to bury their boys. It was really touching to see the head boy from their school speaking at the funeral service. And here is what he said. Please forget all your cold and dark memories and rest in peace. Please go with a bright smile. And here is what one of the fathers said about the funeral. At that moment, at the funeral, I finally realised it was all real. The hearse was covered in chrysanthemums. Somebody donated the flowers. I felt very grateful. At least we sent them away properly. We took the ashes to the Nakdong River and sent our children away on the flowing waters so they could float into the Pacific Ocean. They were all laid to rest in the same place. They died together, so we wanted them to play together in the afterlife. But of course, that wasn't the end of the story. The lawyer goes on to talk about the lawsuits that were then filed. I filed a lawsuit against the police because the government has to be the one to compensate the families. We had three trials and we lost them all. After this, the judges ended the investigation. They didn't arrive at any verdict that directly pinned the blame on the police. How can that be their final judgment? It is a rotten judgment. It was wrong. And now, listen to the theory put forward by the chairman of Missing Children. This is only my theory, but I think there is a huge conspiracy in this case. We kept reading news articles and the military was always mentioned. I kept thinking, why isn't the police investigating the military when everyone is talking about the military? I think they are hiding something. We should look at the political situation back then. South Korea was under a military dictatorship. It was a dangerous time during President Ro Tae-woo's military regime. There was a rigid hierarchy. The people at the top are the ones who have the power to control and regulate our society. And one of the fathers added, let's say if a military officer accidentally shot a boy, who would investigate that incident? Think about it. There is no one who would have the power to conduct an investigation. I think one child was accidentally shot and the rest of the boys were killed as well to cover up the accident. There were warning signs around the shooting range, clearly marking it as a dangerous zone. I don't think the children would have entered this zone. 
If the children had indeed been shot by the soldiers, it would have been much easier for the military to hide the incident. If you go inside the military camp, there is an incinerator. It would have been easy for them to have got rid of the bodies, but they did not. So, then about five years ago in 2015, due to vigorous agitation by many, the statute of limitations was removed for first-degree murder. Previously, there had been a limitation of 15 years. So this now means any new evidence can lead to the case being reopened. So at least it's good to know that South Korea's legal system has progressed over time. Now the documentary that I watched about this tragic story was released only in January this year, 2020. So what I have presented is the most up-to-date information. So far, there have been no arrests and the military continued to deny any involvement and have never been investigated. So here are my thoughts on this story. For me, the evidence seems to point to the military being involved. I think that it was an accident. One of the boys got hit, which is why only one of them had signs of a bullet wound. And then the others were killed to cover it up. But they had blunt force trauma to the head. So I'm not sure why they didn't just shoot them as well. Maybe too many shots being fired would attract attention. But then again, people knew there was a shooting range there. I'm not sure whether you could hear the shooting range from the town. But I think that there were at least two people involved. One person couldn't have subdued all of them. But the forensic expert disputed that the holes on the skull was a bullet wound because the bone hadn't been fractured. I've seen the photo and there are clearly two round holes on either side of the skull. So what else could have caused that? Perhaps the bullet made contact from quite a distance away so it was able to penetrate without causing too much bone damage. If he had been shot at close range, then you'd imagine that the skull would have shattered considerably. But of course, I'm no forensic expert. Perhaps the knowledge that they had at that time just wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. Now, it also would have been quicker and easier to shoot all of them rather than hitting them on the head to death. So did they perhaps run out of bullets? Is that the reason why? It was also said that it was common knowledge that bullet casings were littered all over the mountain and children were known to go up there specifically to look for them. This leads me to think that the shooting range wasn't at a far enough distance away from where civilians could access. I would imagine that today there would be regulations about where shooting ranges would have to be located. So back 30 years ago, it seems that the regulations just weren't as stringent. Now, the boys were also found all huddled together, which led police to believe that they did this to keep warm. But if you have killed a number of people, of course, you would place them all together so that you wouldn't have to dig a huge hole. What's the point of separating them? This is something that you see often during cases of genocide, where bodies are just placed together in piles in mass graves. And the fact that the sleeves 
of one of the tops was tied together, I think what they did is to use the top to perhaps tie the bodies together. And now I will finish by providing some final words from the four remaining fathers. The first father said, Today the police has changed a great deal. They have more advanced methods and their thought process is different. Back then the police ignored us and treated us with disrespect. But now they are more sympathetic and they try to listen to us. I will keep searching for the criminal until the end. Another father said, My life is almost over anyway. I've been patient until now. I can wait a little longer to see him. Another father said, When I think back, he was a good child. Now that all the children have gone, I feel like the sky is falling and my heart is breaking. And now you will hear some audio of the last father and I will provide a translation afterwards. So here the father said, To my son who I miss greatly, our loved sons, Chal Won, Ho Yon, Yang Gu, Chan In, and Yong Sik, we really miss you. It is said that when your parents die, you bury them in the ground, but when your children die, you bury them in your heart. I thought I could forget you after seeing you returned to dust, but I miss you even more as time goes by. Oh, that's just so sad. What a sad story. These poor little boys just doing what little boys do. It's just so sad. And this is one of those stories that's just so bizarre. And it's a one of a kind and you, you just won't have another story like this one. And, you know, I don't even know how I found this story, but often I will be looking on YouTube and I'll see something interesting in the right-hand side preview panel. And in this particular case, I saw the words frog boys, which caught my attention. And so this is how I found this particular story and also how I have found other stories that I have presented. And to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote from Franklin D. Roosevelt. When you educate a man in mind and not in morals, you educate a menace to society. Bye for now and remember to be a good apple.